0: If only Jesus was king, his peaceful kingdom he'd bring. If only God was love, it would fall from the skies above. In Jesus, we move from only and if to now. My name is Josh, and this is We the Peace. We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by Pax dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode hello everyone this is we the peace my name is josh and we are in the middle of season two called jesus centered politics in this episode we have the honor of hosting mark charles a native american writer speaker and a former presidential candidate who ran against biden and trump in 2020 mark co-authored a book called unsettling truths the ongoing Dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery with IVP. I would suggest you pick that up. It is a huge honor to be speaking to you right now, Mark Charles.
1: Thank you, Josh. It's very good to be with you. Please let me introduce myself briefly. So Yate, Mark Charles Yanishia, Sinbake Dina Nishw, Sinbake Dana Dasha Chedu Chitni Dashanella. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people with our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say tsinbake dine'a. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also tsinbake dine'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totechitni, that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., and these are the lands of the Piscataway. The Piscataway are the nation that they've lived here, they've hunted here, they've farmed here, they've fished here, they've raised their families here, buried their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And they are still here. I've had the honor of meeting some of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to these lands by some of the Piscataway, and I am honored and humbled to be on their lands, and I want to acknowledge um, that they are the indigenous hosts of these lands, and I want to thank them for their stewardship of it.
0: Thanks for that introduction, Mark. Um, It teaches us a lot just hearing you introduce yourself and, and understanding from your vantage point as a believer. It's beautiful. First question, super broad. What is key to peace in the 21st century?
1: I thought about this question, there's a lot of ways I could answer it. I would probably say that one of the key things I tried to do with our campaign and one of the things I'm trying to do in my work is to create what's called common memory. Um, When George Erasmus, who was a Dené leader from the uh, Native Nation up in Canada, and he was writing about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission up there over their history of residential schools, he used this quote that said, where common memory is lacking where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Mm-hmm. If you want to build community, he said, you have to start by creating common memory. I, I love that quote. I think it gets to the heart of not only our nation, but even a lot of our global challenges with race, which is here in the United States, for example, we do not have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers a mythological history of discovery, expansion, opportunity, exceptionalism, And we have communities of color, Native peoples, African Americans, that have the lived experience of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of boarding schools and Indian massacres, of segregation and mass incarceration, of internment camps, families being ripped apart at our borders, and there's no common memory. And if you look back over our history, there's no point in our history where you can look back and say, oh, we had good cross." racial lines are crossed ethnic lines of community, it doesn't exist. And so I think if we want to find a way to live peacefully, to have a healthier relationship moving forward, we have to learn how to deal with our past. We have to learn how to acknowledge what happened, find a way to move forward that doesn't diminish the injustices and create this common memory.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. This episode is dedicated to thinking through uh, national politics, and that's a speciality of yours, absolutely, not only in your theological, uh, uh, theologically rooted book on the doctrine of discovery and what that means for nation building, but also actually entering the race. What are some takeaways that you have from running for president?
1: The theme of our campaign was we wanted to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. Now, when you have a platform and a slogan inviting all the people, you get all the people. And one of the things I was so blessed and blown away by was the incredible diversity of people we had supporting, volunteering for, advocating for, giving money to, donating to. This campaign, and yeah. we had people from not only different um, political uh, lines of right and left, or even uh, different from that, but we had uh, vast diversity racially, gender wise, um, uh, politically, socioeconomically. Um, sexual orientation like you we had this diversity and one of the things i reflected on in the midst of our campaign was you know in all of my years working with the church i've never gathered such a diverse group of people before yeah and then i reflected on christ's ministry and he didn't have just you know like your mega church where you have different shades of color in the pews but Everyone has the same socioeconomic background, right. same educational background, same neighborhood they come from. He had people from the polar ends of the spectrums. He had zealots, and he had he had tax collectors, he had fishermen. Like he had people from the edges of their society, both sides, all sides. And you don't get that type of diversity unless you cast a very wide net. Yeah, and so it made me think, like how open and welcoming was Jesus to the wide variety of all of the fraction of the factions within Judaism that he gathered and had disciples from the polar ends. And yet we don't do that well in the church, nor do we do it well politically here. And so that was, that was a huge takeaway was um, by casting such a broad net, which is what we did with our campaign. We had, some incredible representation within our campaign.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, Yeah. That's really interesting to to learn about and hear from you. So you're in Washington, DC. You're very in touch with what's going on nationally. How do we as Christians, and when you think of like church leaders and when you think of people sitting, sitting in pews or definitely not this year, sitting in pews, hopefully doing church in houses. What does national engagement look like for Christians? How do we engage nationally
1: well one of the things and and this will kind of go into some of what we did in our book you know when, when i began writing the book um Unselling truth with my good friend Shan ra um, who's a professor of theology at north park seminary and uh and we sat down and kind of started putting the outline of our book together we really were centering it around the call for the church to lament. Um, we were laying out the Doctrine of Discovery. We, he had just written a book on lament uh, called A Prophetic Lament. I was laying out this history for the church and calling the church into a process of lament. And then we we signed the contract and started writing our book, our working on the book. It was maybe 2014, 2015. And then the 2016 election happened. Yeah, And after that election, especially when white evangelicals had such an oversized role in putting Donald Trump into office. We sat down to rethink our whole thesis for the book. And instead of the book being a call to lament, the book turned into a flat out rebuke of the church. And we added several chapters, two of which were some of the most important chapters as chapters three and four, where we, we trace how the church Yeah. Got from the teachings of Jesus to the doctrine of discovery. Okay. And when Jesus says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we end up, uh, you know, uh, 1500 years later with a doctrine of discovery that gives the church authority to kill people who doesn't look like act like worship like, or, or, um, you know, dress like they do. And so the problem with that is, you know, the church, we trace it back to Constantine, actually to the writings of Eusebius, decides that in an effort to end its persecution, it's going to prop up an emperor of Rome as a God-ordained emperor to Christianize Rome. Yeah, Constantine took that bait and made Rome Christian. And that marriage of church, which was called to sacrifice itself, and empire, which is about preserving itself, That's where the church got offline, and that's where we end up where we are today, where so much of the church thinks their job is to make the nation Christian. They think the job of their role in government, in political engagement, is to legislate their theologies and their doctrines, which is, you know, Jesus was very adamant. There's no such thing as a Christian empire. His kingdom was somewhere else. He did not come here to legislate his theologies. He came to 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 make disciples. And so, yeah, I think that's where uh, where the church really gets it wrong. And so, I would say the church's role our our role is to help make the nation more just. Yeah. Our role is to speak truth to power. Our role is to advocate for the most marginalized. Our job is not to protect our rights as Christians.
0: How do, how, so how do we as Christians engage in national politics, or even local politics for that matter, without selling out to empire? And I'm asking you as a presidential yeah. candidate, how do you yeah. go
1: about doing that? I think one of the things that I was very adamant about in my campaign is, yes, I'm a candidate for president and I'm a Christian, but I'm not the Christian candidate. My goal is, in no way, shape, or form, to legislate my theologies, or to make my nation Christian. You know, there's in our book we look at this quote by Augustine, and in his book Correction of the Donatists, he's asking a question. This is he's one of the first major theologians after Constantine Christianizes Rome, and he's kind of left with, what do we do with this heresy of Christian Empire? Do we collude with it, or do we do we prophesy to it? And in his book Correction of the Dantis, he asked the question, what's the role of a Christian king in a Christian empire? Yeah. And he concludes his role is to compel people through fear of punishment and pain yeah. to obey the teachings of the church, which is nowhere close to what Jesus ever said. Yeah. And so and so, yeah, I would say the role of the church is to engage politically to help make our nation more just to help give um, rights and freedoms to the most marginalized, to use some of our access. You know, we have the ability to vote. We have the ability to run for office. We have the ability to do all these things, but instead we spend all our time fighting for our right to say Merry Christmas again and fighting for our right to pray in public schools and fighting for our right to do all these things so we can look pious, but not actually doing things that advocate for the most marginalized within our society and so this is where i would say if we're going to engage politically as a church we have to check um check our own pride at the door and be willing to um sacrifice ourselves for so we can give voice to and lift up the most marginalized within our communities
0: That's good. So talk a little bit about the two party system because you've had a front, not just a front row seat, like we're talking been through the entire process, the machine of what it means to run for president. And when I look, you know, as a 34 year old white dude, you know, Mark looking at the two party system, I'm like, it's, it's a joke. Like This is this is a crazy way to go about things. I know there's a bunch of political arguments on why it's a good idea and how there's checks and balances and, and, and all all of this, but I look at it, I'm like, I have Caesar number one and Caesar number two, that I'm being forced to get behind. And am I allowed as a Christian to do the lesser of the two evils argument? And so thankfully you were running for president, <laughs> right? I was happy about that because I'm like, okay, that's not Caesar number three. I can get behind this. There's some Jesusness going on to what Mark Charles is doing. And um, as like a neo-Anabaptist, it still makes me uncomfortable, but I'm like, listen, this is a beautiful alternative. Am I viewing the two-party system right? Is it, is it really that broken? And how can Christians register for a party and vote without losing their fidelity to Jesus. And this is somebody who thinks, like, advocating for voting is okay, but talk about the two-party system.
1: Well, so to understand the challenge with the two-party system, you have to understand the foundations of our nation. Okay. So in his final State of the Union, President Obama was acknowledging the huge divisiveness that he had seen and experienced as our nation's first black president. And in his final State of the Union, he was kind of lamenting that And he quoted the Constitution. He said, we the people. Our Constitution begins with these three simple words. Words we've come to recognize mean all the people. And he was calling our nation to what he called a new politics. Now, as I sat in my home listening to that speech in 2015 or 2016, I, I asked myself, I said, when, Mr. President, when did we decide we, the people, meant all the people? Yeah. Right. Our Constitution begins with this preamble that says we, the people of the United States, Article 1, Section 2, the section that determines who is and who is not included, never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, yep. counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. The 13th Amendment doesn't actually abolish slavery. It keeps it legal within our prison system. Yep. Our Declaration of independence, which Joe Biden loves to misquote and says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He misquotes it and says all men and women are created equal. It doesn't say that, Mr. Biden. As great of a vision as that is, that's not what it says. One of the most freeing days of my life as an American citizen is the day I acknowledged the Constitution wasn't written to protect me as a native man. Wow. It was written to protect white landowning men. When you take away again article 1 section 2 you take away women, you take away natives, you take away africans. Yeah. In in 1787 that literally left white men and it was white landowning men who could vote. And then when you go through the history Right, we 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 talk about our history. Where Abraham Lincoln is the greatest president in our nation's history, he was actually a blatant white supremacist, and he was literally committing genocide against native peoples to make way for for the transcontinental railway. When he was assassinated, yeah. my people, the Navajo people, were in in. Um, Imprisoned at Bosque Dondo in New Mexico when he was assassinated. He had created that camp, signed the order to create it just a year prior. 10,000 of our people were, were rounded up and herded down there, and a quarter of our people died while imprisoned there. Yeah. And, and so he obviously did not believe we the people meant all the people. Right. As good as the civil rights movement was, it did not get us to we, the people, meaning all the people. Then just one other piece. So then this doctrine of discovery. Right. It's these papal bulls written in the 1400s. It literally it's the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers. Those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. This is the doctrine of discovery. It's the doctrine that gets embedded into the foundations, the, the Declaration of Independence. 30 lines after all men are created equal, refers to natives as savages. The Constitution excludes women, excludes natives, excludes, excludes African people. And then that doctrine in 1823 becomes, by the Supreme Court, the legal precedent for land titles, basically stating because natives are savages, they do not have rights to the land. That right belongs to the discoverers of the land, which were the white Europeans. And so they are the title holders. And that doctrine of discovery gets referenced by the Supreme Court in 1823, 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. And so the challenge is is we have white supremacy, racism, and sexism embedded into our foundations. And so if you want to understand the two-party system, the two-party system is all about maintaining the status quo. And yeah. the status quo is racism, sexism, and white supremacy.
0: And for those of you you know, who haven't read Mark's book, he's talking about a false doctrine called the doctrine of discovery that it was infused in the founding of our country. Yes. And so it's not simply a modernist problem. It's not simply a a European problem that was brought here. This is a theological problem. Yes. And, and I, I bring that up to say that is on the shoulders of the church to figure out, even if you are not a political person or you don't buy the whole politics of Jesus stuff, we have bought into an entire false doctrine That it is okay for Protestant and Catholic people to come to a new place and by virtue of looking at land on behalf of some king or queen somewhere else, you can take that. We would all right now say, that's crazy, that's evil, what are we talking about? But this is the foundation on which we built our country. Am, am Am I reinforcing what you're saying or am I off?
1: Yeah, no, you're, you're on. And, and so this is the challenge, right? So, so this is where, if we look in 2016, President Trump was running to make America great again, implying our history, our past, our foundations were great. Correct. Hillary Clinton, not to be outdone, said, well, America's already great. In fact, she said during the debates, America's great because America's good. Yeah. So they both agreed our past, our history, our foundations were great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no, Hillary said yes. My critique of the 2016 election was the debate we were having as a nation. It was not racism versus anti-racism or equality versus inequality. The question we were debating was, do we want Donald Trump to make us explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacist? Or did we want Hillary Clinton to work to keep our racism and sexism implicit? Right. Those are the two ways they get played out, and so the two-party system is all about maintaining the status quo, which is why the challenge we had with Joe Biden now coming into the mix in 2020, where we had, um, you know, he the Democrats opened up this campaign with the most diverse pool of candidates they've ever had. Yeah, they had more women, more people of color, more members of LGBTQIA2S plus running for president in ni- 2019 and through the way the primary system works and because again they first had to campaign where Iowa and New Hampshire Iowa is the fifth whitest state in the, con- in the country New Hampshire is the fourth Iowa has the highest amount percentages of private lands New Hampshire has the highest percent of home ownership when the Democrats and the Republicans put their primaries in these states first, they are literally making white landowning men the gatekeeper for presidential politics. And so that's why I ran as an independent because I wanted my first campaign event not to be to white landowning men in Iowa, New Hampshire, but to the native peoples of Turtle Island. That's right. So as an independent, I campaigned almost in all of 2019 in places like Arizona and Colorado and New Mexico and Minneapolis and South Dakota and Oregon and California and Oklahoma bringing my message first and foremost to the native nations of Turtle Island.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this to get your thoughts. Anecdotally, one thing I've noticed about anybody running for president that can be elected or is electable is at some point, no matter who you are on the left on the right, you have to buy into this myth of American exceptionalism. You have to talk about the founding documents. You have to talk about how we got here in a mythological way. And you have to talk about the constitution and the bill of rights as sacred and holy documents that really should be spread around the world as democracy should spread. Now, Democrats and Republicans uh, go about this differently but one thing I've, I've noticed specifically in watching your campaign is you're not going to play that game of treating these documents. Are they important? Yes. Are, are they beautiful in some ways? Cool. Fine. Great. <laughs> They're well thought through, but there's massive, epic gaps, literally of biblical proportions, theological proportions... That nobody nobody addresses, whether they're running in poetry or whether they're governing in prose, I don't see it. You just yeah. have to say, No, we we worship those documents. They yes. are our true North. And you weren't willing to play that game.
1: Not at all. Yeah. And this is this was the challenge is um our nation doesn't know how to deal with its own history. Wow. You know, and it doesn't want to wrestle with how systemic our racism, our sexism, and our white supremacy is. And we saw this very clearly with the lynching of George Floyd. Yeah, This happened in, in the spring of 2020. And, uh, you know, after that horrific public lynching by the Minneapolis police department of this black man, George yeah. Floyd, Donald Trump came out and his solution was he, he gave an executive order and he said, let's ban certain chokeholds. Joe Biden he came out and he said, well, we have to retrain our officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. Okay? These were their solutions. Yeah. A few weeks later, Jacob Blake was shot. And again, there were massive protests. Now, technically, both of their criteria were met. He wasn't choked, so that should have satisfied Trump, nor was he shot lethally, which should have satisfied, satisfied Biden. But yet it was clear to the world what happened to Jacob Blake was still an injustice. And my campaign was the only campaign in this race that was advocating that if we want to deal with this issue of police violence and brutality against people of color, we have to start by removing the clause from the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment which most people think abolishes slavery, doesn't actually do that. It says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. It doesn't abolish slavery. It merely redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system this is the very criminal justice system that now has a prison to a school to prison pipeline that's lynching people of color on a regular basis throughout our country and so my solution was i said let's start with abolishing slavery and neither of the two parties wanted to address that yeah the media didn't want to address that And yet that was so clearly when we saw what happened to Jacob Blake a few weeks after George Floyd or a few months after a month or two after George Floyd. It's like, yeah, just banning chokeholds and retraining officers is not going to fix the problem. We have to remove this institutionalized white supremacy from our Constitution. Yeah.
0: For those that are like, oh, man, I'm overwhelmed with like the politics and the policy stuff. And Mark ran for president. But that's like I'm just a normal normal person in my life. What practical steps should churches or organizational leaders take as they help people engage in national politics? What are some practical steps they can take?
1: I think one of the most practical things that we need to do as a church, first and foremost, is we have to decolonize our faith. We have to recognize that the church cannot be embedded with empire. And our job is not to make our nation Christian. Um, the ending of our book, basically what we say to the church is that until it gets out of bed with Empire, it's impotent. It has nothing to offer. The church, if if we if the church in its current state were to be asked how to deal with the challenges our nation is facing, the church's solution would be to make the nation Christian. That's right. And that's what caused the problem in the first place. That's right we have nothing to offer this world the the damage that we've created through this doctrine of discovery until we get out of bed with empire yeah and so the the call for the church is actually a very drastic one this isn't something we can just do in stages right and until we can we can recognize that our job is not to legislate our theologies yeah our job is not to be evangelistic in our in our governmental policies our job is not to you know somehow compel the country to worship god we don't have much to offer yeah and and that's a that's not just something we can do that's an entire paradigm shift that yeah. the church is not the church is not sure what it what where it wants to go with that in my observation yeah as we've laid out the message from our book that I, we've We've sensed some excitement at an individual level, but at a systemic level, at an institutional level, the church is chewing on that at best.
0: Well, listen, I, I want to give you the opportunity as we, as we close here to read something you've prepared. I, I think it'd be meaningful if you could give a little context for it and, and read it for us.
1: Yeah, I want to share with you this. Um, it's a proverb, actually, that I was asked to write, um, or it's in the form of a proverb. I do some work with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. And in 2018, I was speaking at one of their conferences, and this was in the middle of the, um, of the immigration crisis where families were being separated at the borders, kids were being put in cages. And the worship institute, um, my good friend John Whitley, asked me to present something about my prophetic message, but in the form of a proverb. And I wrote this, and I want to share this with, with you and with your audience today. Wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. Remember, my brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. When the church merely lobbies one political leader and protests the other, when for the sake of argument or political gain, the body of Christ turns a blind eye to one sin and magnifies another, we are not representing the headship of our body, who is Christ. As vile, repulsive, and urgent is the Trump administration's separation of families at our borders, it's not the first time. Indian removal, the slave trade, boarding schools, lynchings, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, even the deportation numbers of the Obama administration. The list of ways the U.S. government has worked to destroy the family structure of people of color throughout our history is as long as it is depressing. So let's stop pretending that President Trump is the God-ordained savior or or the ultimate demise of our union. The same with President Obama, or now Joe Biden. What our nation needs is not for Democrats to be better Democrats, nor do we need Republicans to simply be better Republicans. We don't even need our nation to be more Christian. My brothers and sisters, the United States of America is not, never has been, nor will it ever be Christian. Jesus did not come to create a Christian empire. He came to make disciples. He came to offer his body as a living sacrifice. He came to plant a church. And wise is the church that refuses to buy into the trappings of partisan politics. I agree with Kenneth Kaunda, the former president of Zambia, who said, What a a nation needs more than anything else is not a Christian ruler in the palace, but a Christian prophet within earshot.
0: That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that with us. It's uh, an honor and very special to have you on. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what's next. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I have five quick takeaways as I let you go. One, Christian leaders must promote the flourishing of all peoples through national platforms. Two, Christian leaders must stop trying to legislate our own theology into our nation. This is a historical mistake. Number three, we should be getting back to Jesus and a church that is willing to sacrifice in a society. Four, we need to decolonize our understanding of Jesus and decolonize our churches. And five, Mark Charles drove us to create a common memory, developing a common historical and cultural narrative of how we got to where we are as a country. This podcast called We the Peace can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and most places where podcasts land. Blessings as you seek to embody the peace of Jesus wherever you are.